you got your Bibles this morning, grab those and turn to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians 1 today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in front of you. You can just turn to page 821 of it. And you'll be right with us. And if you don't own a Bible, then please, on your way out, head out this exit. Uh, grab a Bible off that welcome desk out there because we want you to have one. Uh, every single time, we, I say this every week, you probably could say it along with me if you're a regular, but every single time we want you to in, come in this building, we want you to come under this word um, because it is our authority, it's our compass, it's where we get everything. Um, so we don't want to present to you any of our opinions or any of our thoughts, we want it all to come from the word, so we want you to have the word of God. So if you don't have one of those, please take one of those on us today. Well, let's pray before we get in this. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. God, I thank you for each and every person who came in here. Uh, Lord, uh, some came off of really good weeks. Some came off of really uh, horrible weeks. Some came off of kind of boring, mundane weeks, God. But whatever baggage we bring in here today, whatever burdens we're carrying, God, we pray that we just set those now at the foot of the cross and just hear from you today. Lord, I just ask that you push the distractions of life, of this room, of me, of anything out of the way, God. And may we just hear from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, late last summer, Corinne and I took our daughters, who at that time were six and three, camping for the first time. Now, given that they were six and three, I was brave enough to commit to one night only. Right? I was going to try this out for one night and see how it went, and it went a lot better than I expected. Uh, I've always been somebody who loves being outside. I enjoy sitting by the fire, I enjoy getting away uh, and just being in silence for a little bit. So I'm hoping we're going to get to go more this year, but I've noticed... I noticed something on that trip, and it was something that I noticed uh, one summer in college that I spent working at a state park, that there are people who go camping without ever really going camping, right? The mobile home or the RV has replaced camping for some people. Now you can literally drive a home onto a concrete slab, and if the, con- if the campsite is nice enough, you can connect it to electricity and sewer and water line. They're selling RVs now with TV, satellite TV dishes on top of it. Right? Those in mobile homes won't have to bother with dirt, they won't have to build a fire, they won't have to deal with the elements at all if they want to. It's actually possible if they desired to go camping and never actually step foot outside. Okay? Now people presumably go camping to get out of the house, to see different things, to experience different things, but it's possible, it's possible now to experience all the same comforts and furnishings that we have at home while we're camping so nothing really changes. Right? They drive to a new place, they... Uh, set themselves in a new surrounding, but they've really just carried their old setting into the new place. And by the way, I've used this analogy before at a church in Putnam County, and man, all the RV owners got really upset with me, right? I'm not, just so you know, I'm not hating on you, but let's just be real about what you're doing, and what you're doing isn't camping, all right? So let's just be honest about that. But, so I say that because last week we wrapped up the book of Acts, looking at how Luke finished the story. The last two verses of Acts tell us that Paul while he's under house arrest, welcomes everyone who came to see him, and boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we closed out Acts, uh, the way that we talked about all the way through, the things we talked about all the way through Acts, that we are to be sharing our faith in Jesus with others. That this is the mission that's been given to us by Christ, that we are to be his witnesses and go make disciples of all nations. And oftentimes when we do this, even when the church gets this right, we can lose sight of the entire mission. 
So here's what happens. Here's what I'm talking about. We, so we begin, we, we identify people in our lives who need Christ. So we begin to pray for them and we invest in them. We build relationship with them and we share Jesus with them. And then the moment that we've waited for and longed for and prayed for happens where they too believe in Jesus. And they ask him to forgive them and he saves them. And so they're baptized and they start going to the church we go to and we relax. We're satisfied. We move on because we're done here. Right, we've, and we've, what we set out to accomplish has been accomplished except we're not done here. And what we've been asked to accomplish hasn't been accomplished. This is why Jesus in Matthew 28 tells us to go and, doesn't, he doesn't tell us to go and make believers of all nations. He tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. And that distinction is huge. Because what, without that distinction, without realizing that, here's what can happen. Here's the danger. We can actually convert someone to a Christian culture without ever having them develop into a fully devoted follower of Christ. So what will happen, just by being around you, over time, all their friends will become Christians. And over time, they'll start listening to WBGL on the radio. And they'll start going to Christian movies. And they'll look like those they go to church with. And they'll talk like those they go to church with. And, and they'll just be ingrained into a culture. Now, is Christian culture bad? No. You choose a whole lot worse cultures out there for you. But we cannot confuse. We simply cannot confuse ingraining someone into a culture with genuine life change. Because all those things I talked about are possible to occur without ever experiencing life change. I can have Christian radio on in my car and still wrestle with addictive sin. Right? I can go to church every Sunday and still be a super prideful person. I can slap a Jesus fish on my car bumper and still pursue all sorts of worldly things that all the non-Christians also pursue. But a follower of Jesus, a fully devoted follower of Jesus, they deny themselves. They take up their cross daily for the sake of their king. They're a whole new creation and they daily strive to live that out. And they don't settle for a cheap imitation of it because, because they know that Jesus pursues every aspect of who they are. Let's put it this way. If you don't quite grasp what I'm saying. We just spent six and a half months, almost seven months studying the book of Acts. How boring would the book of Acts have been if the apostles had just been indoctrinated into Christian culture? It wouldn't have been that good a book if, if it wouldn't have been a great study if Peter had just gone back to fishing and prayed over his meals and named his fishing boat blessed. Right? It wouldn't have been near as compelling if after meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul just dressed nicer and sang Chris Tomlin songs the rest of his life. Right? Acts 2 wouldn't have had the same impact if it had described the first church this way. Listening to the apostles teaching once a week, they kept everything they had for themselves, but branded Jesus fishes under the back of their donkeys. Right? I don't think we'd have gotten a whole lot out of that book if that's how it had gone down. Yet we're so apt to convince ourselves, that's all that God is really looking for me as a Christian in America. As long as I grant him an hour a week, as long as I pray over my meals, as long as I clean up my life and my language a little bit and look the part, then man, what more does he want from me? Well, I'm sorry if you hold that view. I just can't find that in the Bible. I've looked. Right? And those people we study in Acts, not just the apostles, but Cornelius, Lydia, the jailer, they were, their lives were dramatically altered by the gospel. The gospel took hold of them. The spirit took up residence inside of them. They simply just couldn't be the same anymore. Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for them, no less, was big enough that it had a huge impact on them. And today we're starting our journey through the book of Colossians. And this is exactly, this is exactly what Paul is going to argue throughout all of this letter. 
that the way the resurrected Jesus changed the lives of those in Acts, it should be the way it changes the lives of those of us in this room. That the gospel doesn't just change our eternal destination, it changes us. And Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church he'd never been to before. He didn't plant this church, he never taught there. But its origins can be tied back to him. And in the first eight verses of Colossians, we're going to see all the same themes we saw in Acts. So let's look at those real quick, just to set up the book. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Coloss, grace and peace to you from, our, from God our Father. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Okay, now listen, it's those eight verses that convinced us, that led us to choosing Colossians as the follow-up to Acts. Right, because at the start, when Paul sets up this letter, you see so many of the themes of Acts flowing right into Colossians as a perfect bridge. Paul talks about how the gospel of Jesus is unstoppable. Right, this is the theme that we beat into your heads in Acts, that you simply cannot stop God from saving the world. And he says in verse 6 that all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit. All over the world, he's saying this gospel is changing lives. And then in verse 7, he mentions that they learned this gospel from a man named Epaphras. And I love this little detail because it's not that minor. Right? Christian historians believe that Epaphras learned under Paul. He was, he was saved under the ministry of Paul at Ephesus. So that when we studied in Acts and Paul traveled to Ephesus and planted a church there, Epaphras was there. And it was there that Epaphras gave his life to Christ. It was there that he was brought up in the faith and discipled. And then when Paul left Ephesus and went elsewhere, at some point Epaphras also left Ephesus and went to Colossus because there was no church there. And just like Paul had done for him, Epaphras goes to Colossus and he taught those there about Jesus and he planted a church. See, this is the perfect picture of multiplication. That what Jesus did for Paul in saving his soul did not end with Paul. He shared it with others, eventually leading uh, others like Epaphras to Christ. And that didn't end with Epaphras. Right? He too shared it with others. Now there's an entire church of believers at Colossus. This is what multiplication is all about. That what God has done for you was never designed to end with you. It's to go out of you and be shared and bless others. And then who knows how far God will take it. So Paul has established the basis of this entire letter right away. He's writing to them. He says, because the gospel has reached them, because it's bearing fruit in their lives. He starts verse 9 by saying this, for this reason. Okay, so which means this, because Christians at Colossus, because you believe the gospel, because Jesus has saved you, now there are some things I want to tell you. All right, so look at what he says in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible is that we can read from those who've been there before us, right? So think of it this way. If Larry Bird's going to teach how to shoot a basketball, right, I'm going to listen to that. If Peyton Manning's going to have a seminar on how to break down a defense and pick it apart, I'm all ears because they've gone before and done it well. Paul has planted so many churches. He poured out his life for the gospel. So when he writes about how he prays for a church, that's going to get my attention, 
So he's writing here and he says he prays two things for them. Number one, that they would know the will of God. And number two, that they would be given spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now these two things were important for this church at Colossae and it's important for us in every church today. The Bible is clear that God has a will for my life and your life. And it's often uh, more expansive and at the same time more personal than we realize. But Paul's desire for these Christians was that they would know God's will because there's no better place for a follower of Christ to be than within the will of God. So let me just ask you, just right off the bat, just a few questions. How often do you simply just check in with God? Like, God, is this, just, you know, is this still where you'd have me? God, is this who you'd have me to be with? Is this job, is this uh, decision that I'm facing, this relationship, this major, this habit, uh, the way that I spend my money and the way I use my free time, is, is this what you'd have for me, God? Or am I following my own will and not yours? Before you sit down as a family and you fill up an entire season or a year on your calendar, do you run it by him? God, here's the things I'm thinking about committing myself or my children to this spring. Is this the best use of time for us? Or is, or is there something better that you want us to do? Do you want us to free up more time for you this year? Do you seek him or do you just commit to things and run on autopilot? It's important to seek out the will of God for our lives. Because when we accept Jesus, we're not just accepting him as our savior, we're accepting him as Lord. That's why the call presented to us in the Bible by Jesus himself is follow me. Jesus doesn't say use me for your eternity and then do your own thing. He says follow me. I've said it a hundred times, but the call to follow Jesus means that he's out in front, he's leading, and he's not asking us for directions. Now, with all that said, this idea, I understand that this idea that God has a will for your life and you need to follow it has caused a ton of stress and angst in the lives of Christians. Because we begin to wonder, what, what if I get this wrong? Right, what if I think I'm following God's will and I'm really not? What if I choose the wrong thing? Will God be mad at me? Am I going to ruin my life? Is it going to fall apart because I'm so indecisive? Okay, let's just agree to set those fears aside for a second. Here's why. Here's the wonderful truth about God's will. At least 90%, and that's a conservative estimate in my mind, but at least 90% of God's will for your life has been revealed to you perfectly and completely in the Bible. It's not a mystery. Okay, the vast majority of God's will for you is about who you are, not what you do. And listen, so many marriages if just lined up with the Bible, would see amazing healing and restoration. So much angst would leave people's lives. So much disunity in the church would disappear. So many relationships would be restored. So many priorities would be rearranged. So many worries would be relieved if we just followed what's revealed to us in the Bible. So get in the book. Follow it. Walk in the characteristics and grace and humility and love that it calls us to walk in. Embrace the calls of selflessness and humility. Get more and more fascinated with and enamored by Jesus. And in the meantime, just trust that God is big enough to reveal the other 10% of his will for you in his sovereignty and in his timing. When he chooses to. See, Paul wants these Christians to know God's will. And then he prays that they will have spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is why this is so important. There's a lot of junk out there. And a lot of it is veiled behind Christian images. A lot of it is given a Christian name, even preached from Christian pulpits. Do you know that the entire reason the book of Colossians exists is because there was a group of teachers who come in and were trying to confuse everyone in Colossians and tell them things about Jesus and Christianity that weren't true. 
So Epaphras has actually traveled back to where Paul is to, and to ask him for advice and help him how to deal with these false teachers. And so Paul is writing this letter. That's why we have Colossians. And sadly, this hasn't stopped. People throughout history have used this book, taken it out of context and manipulated it to take advantage of people. To build their financial empire, to, to, to stroke their own ego, to push a narrative that makes their life more comfortable for reasons I probably can't even grasp. People who abuse this book and lead people away from truth. And we have the personal responsibility. We all collectively have the personal responsibility to be able to know and recognize when something is legit and when something isn't. And I want you to know we have a great tool to help us with both of those things. If you want to know God's will for your life and you want to have spiritual wisdom and understanding, it's it's simple. Get in the word of God. Read your Bible. Learn it. Soak it up. It's your weapon. It's your sword. It's your compass. It's your authority. Get in this book. Learn it. And both things that Paul prayed for the Christians at Colossus will be true of you. They'll just be true of you. If you've given your life to Christ, you need to know this. You simply cannot have a growing, vibrant, fulfilling relationship with Jesus apart from his word. You will never overcome habitual and addictive sin in your life apart from his word. You will never experience genuine life change in your life apart from his word. So why try? Make it a priority. Paul tells them what he prays for them. Now he's going to tell them why. Look at verse 10. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, and please him in every way. And we talk about it all the time around here that what you do isn't nearly as important as why you do it. And throughout this book of Colossians, I'm going to be honest with you, Paul's going to zero in a lot on what you do. He's going to talk about our work. He's going to talk about our marriages. He's going to talk about our families. He's going to talk about pretty much every single aspect of your life. And he's going to cover how a follower of Christ should live. He's going to talk about what we do. But the most important thrust of this book and all of scripture is why we should do it. And Paul tells us right at the start, here's why. In light of the grace that God has shown to us, it should become the aim of our lives to please God. And I'm going to ask you a question that I'm not certain that anyone can answer this question, but you and God and maybe sometimes not even you. The question is this, who are you trying to please in this life? Who are you really trying to honor? Whose wisdom do you give most credence to? Who do you listen to above all others? Because there's a lot of voices out there. First off, you, you never have to wonder what your opinion is on something, do you? You have to research and study and search out and ask, man, what do I think about this? You never have to think, gee, I wonder what I want to do here. But what happens when what you want to do and what God wants you to do are different? Who do you listen to then? One of the most ironic things about culture is that it changes its mind every 5 to 15 years on things. And instead of calling itself indecisive, it calls itself progressive. But you see, when culture becomes less and less accepting where we live to follow Christ and uphold his word, who are you going to listen to? All humans are fallen and sinful. And sometimes the people who love us the most and want the best for us the most will push us in ways that they think are best for us. But what if what they want for you is different than what God wants for you? Whose voice are you going to listen to then? I'm I'm, going to be honest with you. I need to ask myself this question constantly, especially in this role. Who am I trying to please? Who am I trying to honor? Who who am I trying to make much of? Because as followers of Christ, we are called to follow him and honor him and please him and serve him above all others. Paul continues. Look at verse 10 again. 
He says, we pray this in order that you may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. This is how we please God. Number one, Paul says, we bear fruit in every good work. Man, that's a lot of Christianese, okay? That's just a Bible term. What it means is this. The idea that your faith in Jesus wouldn't change, wouldn't play out in your life changing, is an unbelievable idea to the writers of Scripture. They can't fathom it. It's not possible. James is the one who writes, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Right? That faith without works is dead. If, you, if Christ has saved us and redeemed us and lives in us, that should change us. So we bear fruit in good work. Number two, we grow in the knowledge of God. Same thing as before, get in the word. You've got to get in this book. Make it a priority to be in this place when you can. Join a small group. Okay, go to a Bible study. Get people in your life that you can ask questions with about what you've been reading or what you want to know about God. Make it a priority of your life to get, this, get to know the, this God who created you and redeemed you and saved you. This is more important than home improvement. This is more important than career advancement. This is more important than athletic achievement. This is more important than physical fitness or getting swole, right? All those can be good, but knowing God takes precedence over all of them. So which do you give more time to? As you see what happens when we get to know God, we're strengthened by his power, Paul says, so that we might have great endurance and patience, being able to joyfully thank God. Now let me ask you a question real quick. You think you need power from God for an easy life? You think you need endurance and patience for a really smooth, comfortable existence? The rest of your life is going to be like floating down a lazy river? What's Paul assuming here? For Christians. He's assuming what Jesus taught. He's assuming what Peter taught. He's assuming what Solomon wrote of and what all the Bible teaches that all of creation was made perfect and sin has marred it. And because of sin, this is now our reality. All of us in all creation are not as we were originally designed. And there comes with that this great burden. There comes a gruesome reality to that that apart from God, apart from Jesus, we will ultimately find no purpose in this life or in this world. You can go ahead and try. You can pursue work. You can pursue pleasure. You can pursue success and money and happiness and power and belonging. And you can do well in all those areas. And every single thing that you acquire for yourself can be taken from you in a single moment. And after everything you do, spoiler alert, you die like everybody else. The realization of this hit Solomon when he writes in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's the realization that hit Mark Twain when he wrote that death is the only unpoisoned gift this world will ever give you. And you'll depart from a world which will lament you for a day and forget you forever. See, the Bible does not hide from the fact that this world is broken, that it's imperfect, it is marred, it's destroyed in many ways. And there is struggle and pain and unspeakable tragedy in the reality of that. But what the book of Colossians is going to argue and what so many other portions of scripture argue tell us is that with Jesus Christ at the center of your life, you're made whole. That in that brokenness, you're made whole. Your life and your work and even the struggles and burdens take on a whole new meaning and purpose. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there are two major implications on the life of a Christian, of those in Christ. We just often talk about and celebrate only one of them. 
And the first implication is this, that when you die, when you leave your life on this earth, you'll be transferred to an eternal reality in heaven with him where sin no longer exists. And without sin, there's no pain and there's no struggle and there's no suffering or loss or hurt or pain or death. All the burden is gone. And man, we champion that one, don't we? We know that one. We proclaim that one. We sing about that one. But listen, the second implication of those who are in Christ is also very powerful. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, eternal life begins now. That even in your state, even while you're left in this broken world, in your broken body, living in this broken creation, you're made whole in him. Now all of your work has purpose because you're working to glorify Christ and you can't find that purpose anywhere else. Now you can love your husband or wife with a love that has no bounds and is completely selfless because Jesus' love for you has freed you up to selflessly love others. Now you have purpose in raising a family that you can raise your children to align themselves under Jesus because there's no greater purpose for their existence than that. Now you can rise above criticism. You can rise above illness and struggle and pain and still experience joy and gratitude in the midst of those things. That even the Bible has this crazy argument that even in the midst of the grind, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the anguish and the toil and the burden of your sin and other sins, that you would be given strength and endurance and patience so that you could always joyfully thank God. And if that sounds too ideal for you, please remember who's writing this letter. Because the man who wrote this letter is the same Paul that we studied in Acts, who in Acts 16 is arrested for freeing a girl from oppression in the name of Jesus. And because of that crime, he's whipped 39 times on his back and his legs with a whip designed to tear the flesh off his body. He was thrown into the inner dungeon cell of a Roman prison in complete darkness, surrounded by human waste, and his feet are placed in stocks, forcing him to lie on the wounds of his back. And at midnight, when so many others would have been playing the victim, I would have been. So many others would have been complaining about their wounds, I would have been. He is singing to and praising God. It's the definition of somebody who's untouchable. And listen, that's not possible unless he'd been strengthened with God's power and been given great endurance and patience so that he could always remain joyfully thankful. What Paul writes in that verse, he lived out. So please, don't ever let someone mislead you into thinking that the closer you get to Jesus, he fixes all your circumstances. Listen, sometimes he does. Right, sometimes he answers prayers in really miraculous ways and remarkable ways and things get better. We could pass around a microphone today and we'd hear endless stories of how good he is. But sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes you pray and things don't change. Sometimes you pray and things don't get better. In fact, they get worse. And what happens then is if, if you've bought into the lie that what Jesus offers us is changing your circumstances, that he's going to fix your life and make it all easy... And when something goes wrong, you bail. But when you do that, you're not bailing on Jesus. You're bailing on the false idea of Jesus that someone gave you. But Paul prays for these Colossians. What the Bible promises is that nothing, no circumstances will ever be able to separate us from the love we find in Jesus Christ. That in all things, no matter how bad the circumstances, God will eventually work out for good for those who love him. That he can guard our hearts and minds with a peace that passes understanding in the worst of times. That in Jesus we will have a foundation that will stand firm through all the struggles and trials and storms of life. What Jesus promises is not a changing of your circumstances. What Jesus promises is to change you. 
That's so that whatever comes your way, because in this life, bad stuff is coming, you can have an endurance and a strength and a patience and joyful gratitude throughout it. That's what he promises. And in verse 12, Paul tells us the source of this gratitude. Look at that. Verse 12, he writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Two, just two simple thoughts Paul wants to remind this church of at the start. Number one, God is the one who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now that's a bunch of church words, but here's what it means. It means if you belong to Jesus, you get everything in the end. Did you know that? The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ who will reign supreme over everything. You get him and you get that. Number two is this. God is the one who rescued you. You belong to the dominion of darkness. Basically, you were an active enemy of God in your sin. You stood prepared to receive his wrath and his anger for all of eternity. And notice who did the work? God qualified you. God rescued you. Verse 14 says that it's in Jesus we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It's because Jesus came. It's because Jesus died on the cross. It's because Jesus took our place that those of us who believe in him are no longer enemies of God. It's not because we did the right thing or we jumped through the right number of hoops. He did it all. It's because he came and he loved and he died and he rose again. He did it all for us. And the rest of the book will argue and what the Bible argues is this. That changes you. This gospel, this idea of Jesus coming and dying in your place and rising again to offer you an eternity, that changes more than your eternity. It changes everything. And if it hasn't changed everything, then you just properly haven't wrapped your mind around what God has done for you. Jesus challenged someone with this in Luke 7. Luke 7, he looks directly in the eye of a Pharisee named Simon. This is what he tells him. He says, Simon, he who has been forgiven little loves little. But he who's been forgiven much loves much. Now what Jesus isn't saying there is this, that some people need to be forgiven of a whole lot and others not so much. We just read that isn't true. We just read that outside of Christ, we're all enemies of God belonging to the kingdom of darkness. We all need to be forgiven of more than we can ever grasp. It's just that some understand that more than others. That's what Jesus was pointing out, Man, over the coming weeks, if you come back, Colossians is going to call you to a standard of living that's higher than you would ever call yourself. Colossians is going to call you to a selflessness that will not come naturally for you. Colossians will tell you that, that what you're now called to be is nothing short of becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. And all those things, even you come every time, all those things will remain as impossible, unreachable ideas that will cause you nothing but guilt, or they will become attainable realities that can joyfully be yours in Jesus Christ. And the difference is this. Have you been forgiven much, or have you been forgiven little? Are you stirred? Are you in awe of? Are you blown away by what God has done for you in Jesus? Or have you been so ingrained into Christian culture that at some point you became the focal point? At some point you began to believe the idea that God's getting a pretty good deal with you. And you're doing all right in your mind, and God should probably agree with that. Listen, if you don't know Jesus today, be blown away at what God has done for you in him. 
be blown away that this idea that he came for you, he died in your place, he rose again to offer you eternal life and surrender your life to him and find a purpose in him that you can't find anywhere else. But if you say, man, I know him, I'm a follower of him, it's the same call. Be blown away at what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He rescued you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. So make it your life mission to please him and live with a joyful gratitude toward him always, regardless of circumstances. The gospel doesn't just change your eternal destination. It should change who you are. Let's pray. Father, we are immensely grateful for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. God, that when we were lost, when we were enemies of you, when we belonged to the minion of darkness, when we had no hope, you came and you suffered and you died and you took our place. So Lord, the fear I have is that the more times we hear it, the less it impacts us. That the more times we hear that, it becomes words. That the idea is so unoriginal that it's lost its power. So God, I pray that as we launch out on this journey through the book of Colossians, that you would help us to hear that for the first time. That you took the nails. You paid the price. You made the way for us when there was no way. We deserved none of it, and you did it anyways. May that thought consume us in this moment, Lord. Those who don't know you yet, may that thought consume us and draw us to you we may give our lives to you in this moment. And for those of us who do know you, may it consume us all over again. May it spill out in joy and in gratitude and in peace and in the way that we live this life for you. We love you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.